You know, this is one of the biggest car manufacturers in the world. They have a metal stamping plant in Alabama that provides major component parts for a lot of the most common, like, Hyundai lines out there. And whistleblowers came forward to explain that this metal stamping plant routinely employs children, some as young as 12. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, we've got a breaking story of Hyundai violating child labor laws with migrant children in an Alabama metal stamping plant. That's from the Work Stoppage podcast. More and more Starbucks Workers United members are going on strike, including in Atlanta and Augusta, Georgia, in the last couple of weeks. And that's some of the latest Southern labor news from the Valley Labor Report. People will always exploit you when it's something you love because they know you'll do it for nothing, unquote. On the Belabored podcast, why performers at the Medieval Times in Lyndhurst, New Jersey, recently voted to unionize. And the only way they're going to change is to get a better balance. And what do I mean by better balance? Well, on the one hand, we have to curb the market power of corporations. That means better competition law uh, uh, enforcement. But on the other hand, we've strangled workers. You know, we've strangled workers working together. Cooperation, collective action, and that's really what unions are about. Nobel Prize winner Joseph Stiglitz in Australia recently to talk with unions, workers, and the newly elected labor government sat down with the On the Job podcast in Melbourne. Having a thriving labor media is a vital part of having a thriving labor movement because nobody's going to know what's happening. And it's like, it is directly harmful to the workers. Hamilton Nolan is a labor reporting fellow at In These Times. He spent the last decade writing about labor and politics for publications like Gawker, Splinter, The Guardian, and of course, In These Times. He's currently working on a book on the labor movement and was the featured guest at this week's meeting of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got an excerpt from that talk. A quick word before we get to the show, this is your network, and we're building it like a union organizing campaign, one show and one listener at a time. If you can, help us build this sonic solidarity by sharing the show. Just click on the share button. Thanks so much. We really appreciate it. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. everybody (laughs) (laughs) and we get to move to what actually i think this is a really important thing because it it reminds me of what you were saying is the the kafala system earlier reminded me of how we did that kind of long series of episodes where we were constantly covering like modern day slavery and this is another sort of thing like that where child labor is alive and well in the u.s folks this is your classical style of child labor where you have little, little hands in the looms yeah 12-year-olds working in a fucking metal stamping plant. Yeah, so this story came out on Friday. This is wild. This is out of Reuters, where they 
exposed that Hyundai, this is one of the biggest car manufacturers in the world, who they have a metal stamping plant in Alabama that provides major component parts for a lot of the most common like Hyundai lines out there. And whistleblowers came forward to explain that this metal stamping plant routinely employs children, some as young as 12, and that this is just the sort of thing that's considered normal by the plant management there. The, it was literally like a family member who said that three children in their family worked both from the ages 12, 14, and 15. And then that's not even to mention that one of the other former workers said that there were 50 underage workers mm -hmm. at the plant across all shifts. This is and, this is ridiculous. And not only is it a lot of jobs you can children can legally start working at the age of 14 generally in, in the United States. But when it comes to these really dangerous jobs, there's ex there's like extreme limitations on what they can do legally until they're like 18. As far as we can tell, these children were running the metal stamping presses. Yeah. Yeah, where there's like a lot of crushing and cutting hazards and just generally things that you wouldn't want around anybody under 18, maybe even 21. And then there's also a heavily racialized element to this mm -hmm. as well, where a lot of these workers and child workers in this facility are immigrants from Guatemala and other places in South and Central America. And so there's a lot of parallels between what you in the agricultural industry as well. And yep. these workers are usually sourced through like third party staffing agencies, which is a major problem that we've talked about a few times on this show. And one of the biggest issues with that is that companies like Hyundai do this on purpose so that when it does come out in the news, oh, there are 12-year-olds running metal stamping presses, Hyundai can say, oh, that's just manpower or labor force or whichever stupid fucking right. company we hired. We didn't know anything about that, which frankly is patently a lie. If you work in a facility that's run by a company that answers to another company, people from that parent company come by. <laughs> that yeah, happens. Yeah, because like the plant is technically run by a company called Smart Alabama LLC, and this and that's the other thing though I think that I think is really important about this is that this is yet another example of the way that companies within the U.S. weaponize their ability to hyper exploit migrant workers because this company Smart had actually been sued in a class action lawsuit for bringing migrant workers from Mexico into the U.S. who they told were being hired as engineers at this plant. Mm -hmm. And then when they got to the country, were tasked with doing janitorial work. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with doing janitorial work. The problem there is the blatant fraud <laughs> by the company. Again, and, real and kafala system hours. Yeah, I really, mean, the whole it's thing one here to is... one-to-one, really, yeah. like... It, it's it is these companies trying to find the absolute cheapest labor they can possibly get and if that means breaking child labor laws if that means breaking laws about like migration all these sorts of things it, it is clear that they were they have are targeting like migrant workers and their whole families in doing this that because like the there's the understanding that if the exploitation is done to people from C Central America, from Mexico, from South America, that there will not be the sort of response from the state if it was revealed that there would be if it was done to white kids. Hey, I think that this, honestly, there, there has to be such extreme repercussions for this that I am struggling to think besides, I don't know, nationalizing the company i don't know i always go to that but i mean like what even can you do besides be like you can't even do this anymore you're hyundai you're done 
Well, that's the obvious solution. And the other solution would be to, like, I don't know, put the CEO of Smart in jail. I think that would be a good start. Yeah. But, yeah, and the other thing, though, that was, I think, was also wild that was almost like a footnote in this investigation was that, like, Hyundai isn't even the only facility in this area that's been found to employ child workers because there's a chicken processing plant in Enterprise, Alabama, which is, I think, about 40 miles from where this Hyundai plant is that was also found to be employ exploiting like underage Guat also Guatemalan migrant children at their chicken processing plant. And the thing that's, I think probably the worst part of this is that because of the way that we have this, the shell game of corporate ownership in the U S you have Hyundai denying any wrongdoing. You have smart denying any wrongdoing. They're mm-hmm. all just saying it was the staffing agencies and those staffing agencies probably don't even exist anymore. They probably like dissolved after they like got their contracts and got their money because we talked about on the show before, like it's so easy for these things to just close up shop, disappear and reopen under another name to evade like responsibility for all the various laws that they break. So yeah, the business owner equivalent of signing up for a service with a t- 10 minute email account like it is to me emblematic of the idea that like trying to have this sort of like humane capitalism within this social democratic shell is always a fool's errand because ultimately that logic of we need lower costs so that we can make higher profits is going to eat away at any regulation, any law, and it's going to incentivize breaking any law that gets in the way of doing that. We're still for pro worker reforms, but Ultimately, the whole fucking system's got to go. This story is, I think, a better example of that than many that we talk about. It's truly shocking. As always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity, everyone. Solidarity, everybody. Oh, great. A battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I say If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Last week in Southern Labor is a segment that we do every week, mostly, where we tell you what happened in the labor movement in the South. We pull the information from Jonah Furman's newsletter with his permission, Who Gets the Bird?, which compiles all of the information about what's going on in the labor movement for the entire United States. So if you want to see what's going on outside the South, then you should subscribe to his newsletter at whogetsthebird.substack.com. And with that, let's jump into new organizing for the weeks of July 2nd through the 16th. There are new shops organizing with the Amazon Labor Union, including in Campbellsville, Kentucky. Very exciting about that. And outside of the Amazon Labor Union, Alex Press has a useful profile on the Garner, North Carolina 
union effort at an Amazon warehouse. Uh, you can also go back and listen to our interview with one of the union organizers from that plant if you would like. It's on YouTube, Facebook, and wherever you get your podcasts. 600 nurses at the Ascension Seton Medical Center in Austin, Texas, are organizing with National Nurses United, which would be the biggest win in the Fort Worth region of the NLRB since 2014. 210 Starbucks workers at nine stores, including one in Lafayette, Louisiana, have formally joined the Starbucks Workers United Drive. 18 workers for Stone Products Company Old Castle in Lylesville, North Carolina, are unionizing with Teamsters Local 171. 17 workers for Maytag Aircraft at Fort Hood, Texas, are unionizing with the Machinists Union. 14 workers for Sixth Rent-A-Car in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, are unionizing with Teamsters Local six, uh, 769. Seven lab workers for Roanoke Cement Company in Troutville, Virginia, are organizing with Boilermakers Local D314. And two first student school bus mechanics in Atlanta, Georgia, are unionizing with Teamsters Local 728. In election wins and losses in the past couple of weeks, Starbucks Workers United went 6-6 six and six over the past two weeks with 272 workers at 12 stores voting a cumulative 92-58 to 58 for the union, but none of those were in the South. Six building engineers at the Thompson Hotel in D.C. voted 5-1 to one to join Operating Engineers Local 99. Sixty guards at the National Gallery of Arts in Washington, D.C. are joining Protective Service Officers United. In updates on strikes and bargaining, Joe Biden has awoken from his slumber to stop a 120,000 worker rail strike that otherwise could have begun as soon as Monday morning. Uh, that this was basically totally expected by everyone involved and that this is not a final injunction against the strike or anything but part of the unbelievably convoluted bureaucratic process that covers rail, rail and airline union negotiations in this country. That does not make it any less true that Biden is denying over 100,000 workers their human right to withhold their labor. More and more Starbucks Workers United members are going on strike, including in Atlanta and Augusta, Georgia, in the last couple of weeks. I was at the Union Augusta location a few weeks ago while I was on a trip for work, so um, that's that's pretty cool. Um, would have been nice to have been able to walk the picket line with them, but happy for them. Over 270 workers from military contractor General Dynamics in Marion, Virginia, have been on strike with UAW Local 2850 for over two and a half weeks. Um, maybe they can find a few pennies in the $839 billion defense bill that Congress just passed. Maybe. Maybe. Meanwhile, a similar number of uh, workers with Steelworkers Local 1449 at Collins Aerospace in Union, West Virginia, another military contractor, have been locked out for over two months. Janitors in Miami with SEIU Local 32BJ say they have been retaliated against for going on strike. Amazon workers walked off on Prime Day in Doraville, Georgia, with uh, the fantastic slogan, pay us or chaos, as they pushed for a $3 an hour raise. 
Dollar General workers with Fight for 15 went on strike for higher wages and safer working conditions in Holly Hill, South Carolina. IWW movie theater workers at the Alamo Draft House in Austin, Texas, are pushing for recognition and walked off the job after the company fired one of their members. Transit workers in D.C. with ATU Local 689, the Amalgamated Transit Union, have authorized a strike, while St. Louis drivers apparently organized a mass sick-out with the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 788 as they try to settle, settle a contract. Uh, Unite Here, Local 23 in D.C. is still fighting for the jobs of Senate dining workers who were just hit with another round of layoffs despite congressional intervention and are now planning to start disrupting things. And they did just that last week with, uh, with a demonstration that saw some congresspeople being arrested. In contract ratifications, as expected, but not by a massive margin, Teamster call haulers, uh, car haulers, ratified their national deal, and Red Cross Teamsters also ratified their contract by a much larger margin. The Airline Pilots Association at United Airlines voted down their most recent contract, sending the union and the company back to the negotiating table, and Treasury Department workers with the National Treasury Employees Union are fighting over the role remote work will play in the future. Negotiations are rocky between schools and Brevard Federation of Teachers in Brevard County, Florida. And that's going to be a wrap for it on the radio for us. Uh, but you can find us, if you're listening to us on the radio, you want to hear more, you can find us on YouTube or Facebook at The Valley Labor Report. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored Episode 251. And now for the news. Medieval Times is one of those pop cultural institutions that never gets old. For decades, the live-action family entertainment program has mixed Renaissance festival aesthetics with theme park-like theatrics. And for the cast members who do the stunts, ride the horses, and act out dramatic tales of gallantry and romance at every show, it is pretty hard work. So that's why the performers at the Medieval Times in Lyndhurst, New Jersey, including the stable hands, the stunt people, knights, squires, etc., voted 26 to 11 last week to join the American Guild of Variety Artists. The bargaining unit includes roughly 40 workers, according to the Huffington Post, which broke the story. The workers complained chiefly about low pay and high-risk labor conditions. As with many professional entertainers, it seems that the company expects its performers to run on passion, even if it means that they make less than a living wage. Currently, the pay for entry-level squires starts at about $14 an hour, which is just about New Jersey's minimum wage. As night performer Antonio Sanchez told the New York Times, quote, fun doesn't pay the bills, unquote. Monica Garza, who plays the queen, said, quote, a huge point of the union is just basic respect. People will always exploit you when it's something you love because they know you'll do it for nothing, unquote. Despite the enthusiasm the cast bring to each two-hour show, many occupational hazards abound in these swashbuckling performances. A typical medieval times show involves highly choreographed fight scenes with knights jousting and parading around on horseback amid crowds of screaming children and rowdy adults in paper crowns who might get a little physically aggressive as the evening wears on. Harassment from audience members has been an issue. 
And then there's the risk of falling off a horse, or a horse freaking out when spooked by loud noises from the crowd. The company issued a statement saying that it planned to bargain in good faith, but in the lead-up to the union vote, it tried mightily to thwart the organizing effort by retaining so-called union avoidance consultants that cost about $3,200 a day and subject employees to captive audience meetings. Huffington Post reported that, quote, a number of employees have spoken up during the anti-union meetings, challenging the assertions made by the company's consultant, according to the workers, unquote. But many medieval times performers may have gone into the union drive pretty confident with a good sense of what was at stake because they've been members of other entertainment industry unions, including Actors' Equity Association. A previous union vote in 2006 narrowly failed amid allegations that the company had violated labor laws to upend the union. But the newly formed union is in good company. The American Guild of Variety Artists also represents the Rockettes of Radio City Music Hall fame and the performers at Disneyland. As with several of the new upstart unions that we've seen crop up at well-known brands, workers with previous labor movement experience have played a role in generating momentum for the organizing drive. Public support may also have helped, as Governor Phil Murphy voiced his support for the union as well. And maybe Medieval Times fans will be extra appreciative of the performers now, knowing that behind the scenes the cast and crew really did prevail in a real-life epic battle between good and evil. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on unionized knights, healthcare workers, Uber drivers, and all the strikes we can keep up with. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to all of you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting and Facebooking and all those terrible social media apping about us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. We would especially appreciate it, and it's free if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new listeners and move up the charts. So thank you for your positive ratings. Special thanks once again to all of you who are supporting us financially over the past nine years over the Descent website or now on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash belabored. We really appreciate your help making it sustainable for us to do this kind of labor journalism. If you want to share your story of working or organizing, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you're a train driver or a ticket taker, a yoga instructor or a veterinary assistant, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. On the job with Fred Slate and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach, out on the road this week, been running around the country, uh, having a great time. Uh, one of the things that I did get to do 
was catch up with Joseph E. Stiglitz. Now, it's not every day that you get the opportunity to interview a Nobel Prize winner, but that's exactly what I had the chance to do last week in Melbourne. Uh, Professor Stiglitz is one of the world's great thinkers on economics. He won the 2001 Nobel Prize for his groundbreaking work in the field. He's been a champion of pushing back against a neoliberal agenda that free market economic models are the only way that we can organise ourselves and that workers will just have to put up with what the market delivers. He has advised uh, presidents. In fact, he worked in the White House for President Bill Clinton. Uh, He has a professorship at Columbia University, one of the great educational institutions on the planet, and amongst other things, advised the Greek government. was a key uh, element in the Greek government's response to its global financial crisis meltdown in 2010. So he has an incredible record and is a revered thinker on economics and the importance and power of workers in establishing equality in our economic systems. So Stiglitz was in town, the professor, talking to a range of different audiences around the country. He's a remarkable man. He's in his mid-80s. His energy and resourcefulness is unbelievable. He goes from morning till night. He talks to everybody that wants to hear from him about his ideas on how we can make our economy a fairer place for workers. So I had the opportunity to sit down with him at this really interesting and important time in our uh, history with the economy in real distress in the post-pandemic world and with inflation starting to gallop away and the drums beating once again that workers need to take a real pay cut in order for our economy to survive the challenges. It doesn't have to be that way and that's something I spoke to Professor Joseph E. Stiglitz about. On the Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rung. Professor Stiglitz, welcome to Melbourne. How are you? Great. It's really nice to be back here in Melbourne again. Can I ask you about unions and labour rights and collective action and how important that is to the future of workers and the next generation of workers as well, that we maintain that collective identity to work together for better outcomes? Well, one of the things that research in the United States and around the world has shown is that in recent decades, there's been an increase in market power. The power of corporations has increased and the power of workers has decreased. And that imbalance is part of why wages are not keeping up with inflation. Again, not as bad here as in the United States. It may make you feel a little better (laughs) that uh, real wages in the United States are the same level as they were 65 years ago. I mean, it's just amazing. Median income is stagnating for more than four decades. So you should feel a little better that things could be worse, but they don't have to be this way. And and the only way they're going to change is to get a better balance. And what do I mean by better balance? Well, on the one hand, we have to curb the market power of corporations. That means better competition law uh, uh, enforcement. But on the other hand, we've strangled workers. We've strangled workers working together. Cooperation, collective action, and that's really what unions are about. Just to finish, Professor Stiglitz, let's finish on a note of optimism. Is there something that you see on the horizon for ordinary workers and people that we should be excited about, that there there is hope for us, even though we are living in a world full of these problems? Well, maybe this is a little bit of negative way. Things have gotten so bad that 
there is a little bit of an uprising. You see it in the United States in the case of where unions have been decimated, where there have been several votes that in support of unionization in Amazon, which has been ruthless against mm -hmm. workers and the working conditions are, are really terrible. I, I, you know, I can tell from people I know who work in those places. So the fact that we have begun to realize that neoliberalism, a 40-year experiment across the whole advanced countries has failed, is at least hope for me that we'll begin to think about what is an alternative. And in that alternative, we have to have a better balance. And part of that better balance is a stronger voice for workers and unions are the institutional way we provide for that stronger voice for workers. Professor Stiglitz, it's been a real pleasure and honor to have you with us. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. With Francis Leach and Sally Rugg, this is On The Job. The wonderful Professor Joseph E. Stiglitz in Melbourne at the magnificent Capitol Theatre last week in conversation uh, with me in uh, what was a really great opportunity to dive into the, the brilliant thoughts of a man who has uh, had the ears of presidents and uh, power brokers and working people around the world for more than six decades, maybe even more than that. He is a remarkable person. It was a real thrill to meet him uh, and be able to have that conversation and bring that to you. That's it for this week's edition of On The Job. Thanks for listening. Please give us a rating. If you are using a, an app to listen to the pod, uh, get on there, write us a review, give us a rating. It helps people find the information and the inspiration. Bumps us up the charts. You know how algorithms work. Uh, we need to play that game and we need your help to do that. So if you could do that, it would be great. You can follow me on the Twitters at St. Frankly. And of course, the best way to improve your working situation is to become a union member. AustralianUnions.org.au. AustralianUnions.org.au is where you go for all the information to find the union that works for you. And I will catch you on the next edition of On The Job. Bye for now. Hamilton Nolan is a labor reporting fellow at In These Times. He spent the last decade writing about labor and politics for publications like Gawker, Splinter, The Guardian, and, of course, In These Times. He's currently working on a book on the labor movement and was the featured guest at this week's meeting of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Labor media is, is a part of the labor movement in an important way, which is like, there's such a like tree falling in the forest effect of 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 labor campaigns that don't get any coverage, you know, because it's such an important part of the leverage in, you know, a union drive, a contract campaign, a strike, like all these things, they have to get covered, you know, and as a labor reporter, I mean, the la I spent the whole pandemic years at in these times, a full time labor reporter. You know, and for every labor story that I wrote, there was probably 10 stories that I didn't write because I just didn't have the bandwidth, you know. And so that, I think, is where, like, e like everybody here can be such an important part of that because, like, places need coverage fundamentally, you know. And, and I would say, like, look look in the corners that aren't given co getting covered, you know. That's why I try actually try to, like, not write about Amazon and Starbucks so much, even though 
clearly they're structurally important, but like there's a whole country of stuff out there, you know, like a lot of times there's there's 50 reporters writing about Amazon and there's zero reporters writing about, you know, the cement plant in Johnsonville, PA that goes on strike or whatever. So like, I feel like, you know, everyone here can help in that sense, just just giving basic coverage to, to all of the stuff that's happening out there in America that might not be the flashiest, Chris Smalls might not be there, but like stuff is happening and it's newsworthy. And, and for anybody to take the time to, you know, put one of those workers on your show, like put one of those union reps on your show, have them talk about it, publish it, you know, put it out on the internet, give give the union something that they can take and and put out themselves and say look we got some coverage like somebody in the world is paying attention i think that's so so important you know and like that's why like um when i talk to union people sometimes i try to say like you know having a thriving labor media is a vital part of having a thriving labor movement because nobody's gonna know what's happening and it's like it is directly harmful to the workers um, when they don't get coverage. So, you know, I know like the people in this group are, are spread out different industries and different parts of the country. So like everybody, I encourage to like, look where you are and, and look at the field you know about and like focus on the stuff that's not getting covered because there's so much in, in labor world, you know, and it always drove me a little crazy when there would be those, those handful of labor stories that would get so much, you know, when the first Bessemer Amazon drive went off. Like I didn't even go, I didn't go to Bessemer almost just cause I was so angry and stubborn because there were so many reporters there, you know? And it was like, there's still a whole nation full of other labor stories out there. So like wherever you are, just like give coverage is the most basic way to help. I feel like. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. As usual, we've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes, and you'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them, use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. And before we go, please take just a second, help us build that sonic solidarity by sharing the show. Just click on the share button. Thanks so much. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. <laughs>